Yeah, I just pretend it's a monster. <coughs> yeah, that's a brother for you. <coughs> I'm leaving some for you, so you'll have plenty. Oh, what a blessing. Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to the book of Joshua. And we're going to be going through Joshua chapter 5. And as we take a look and, and uh, consider... Joshua chapter 5. I was interested, uh, this, uh, this week I had a young man come visit me, just kind of came randomly out of the blue, and, and he came in and, and he just wanted to talk about what he felt, felt like something's missing from his relationship with the Lord, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I get all this stuff, I understand all the things about church and coming to church and doing things, but it just seems like there ought to be more than that. There ought to be something else, something else to it. And I think, uh, I think for the most part, there is. I think we have a here, especially. I think we're we're susceptible to it in the here being in the United States. We're susceptible to uh, a nice, safe Christianity, a nice, safe relationship with the Lord, a nice, safe Jesus. And uh, it's kind of neat because you, you read some of C.S. Lewis's stuff, especially if you go through his Chronicles of Narnia. And one of the things he talks about is there's a character in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Aslan the, the lion, that's a picture of Jesus Christ. And there's a point in it where I think it's Susan who asks, you know, is he safe? And the response is no, but he's good. And I think there's a real deep truth to that understanding that we sometimes myself included we we do what God asks us not to do in the fact that we will create for ourselves God in in our image in our box and we'll look at Jesus or we'll look at the father as a loving father and and the fact that Jesus loves us which is absolutely totally true but whenever we focus on one single attribute of God, it means we're neglecting another. God is also just. God is also righteous. God is also holy. And in all of that, you know, I'm reminded as we look at Joshua chapter 5, it just kind of got me thinking about some things. That, that the life that God calls us to is not necessarily always safe and comfortable. It's not always neat and tidy sometimes there's more to it than that sometimes he's calling us to that and and we will we'll just sink back in our comfortable christianity you know what i mean the just i'm comfortable i come to church i do my church thing but but i, I keep god in that box and i'm afraid for one reason or another to open up the the truth the reality that god wants to be a part of every aspect of your life and he's got now a, a purpose and a plan in every aspect of your life and he's calling us to love him with abandon and just to reach that point where we are reaching out to god with abandon not worried about all the other stuff that we worry about anybody here ever worry about anything like, you know, the next bill you're going to pay, the next, you know, how those things are going to happen. But what does God tell us about that? Does he say, worry about all that stuff? He tells us, and we've been talking about it, he tells us, first off, cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. 
But Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about all that stuff. He says, make your focus the kingdom of God. Make your focus the kingdom of God. And then what does he promise? All these things that you're worried about, that'll be added. But you come after the Lord with abandon. Go after God with abandon. That craziness. A, a few Sundays ago, we talked about a, a friend of mine. I shared with this story about the, the mailbox and shouting, Jesus loves you in the mailbox. And just being willing to holler in the mailbox when God calls you to holler in the mailbox. Sometimes God calls us to do crazy things. I, I'm not sure that we are always aware of that, but he does. And I think often he calls us not to make our primary concern, you know, where we're going to or how we're going to do the things that we call making our life here. And I want to challenge us to stay away from that trap of just cleaning out a spot in your life for the Lord. He doesn't just want a spot. He wants it all. As a church, we, we make things nice and tidy, you know, to try to, to work these things out. We say, you know, you want to you ask the Lord Jesus to, uh, to be your Lord and Savior. We, we pray a prayer. That's all good, but that's, that's just an outward sign of hopefully something that's occurring on the inside. The prayer that we pray is not in the Bible anywhere. Other than the Lord says to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. But then over and over and over again in God's word, he calls us to a, an, a love of abandon, a, 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 a relationship with God that's thrown away things that make sense and willing to embrace where God's taking us. And our biggest fear is, what if it's not God telling me to do that? Well, I, jump. See what happens. I think probably more often than not, we quiet the voice of God in our head more than we quiet our own voice. And if you really want to know if something's the voice of God in your head, just open up the Word of God. Because whatever He's telling you is going to match. He's not going to tell you something that goes against His Word. For example, if you were to come to me and say, I think God's telling me to divorce my husband or wife. I would take you to Malachi and say, no, he's not telling you that. Because Malachi says God hates divorce. So God wouldn't call you to divorce your husband or wife, especially without cause. So there's things like that that we can use to govern it. But I want to encourage you as we take a look at this story in Joshua to see what God does with Joshua. Remember where they come from, okay? Joshua, here Joshua is leading them into the promised land, right? That inheritance... Jesus, the inheritance that Jesus is promising you and I. I come to give you life, and life how? Mediocre? Abundant. abundant life. Abundant life. And I believe Paul describes for us the abundant life. I am as far away from prosperity doctrine as I can get. As far away from as I can get. When I say Jesus came to give you abundant life, that means he came to give you life with purpose, life with strength. Life uh, uh, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to do above and beyond what you can even imagine. Think he, he's come to do that. And remember the illustration that we've been talking about from Francis Chan. That your life is like string rolled out all the way across this sanctuary. That, if that represents eternity, 
Your 70 or 80 years on earth cannot even be seen on that string as a dot. So don't overemphasize the dot. Because what we lose here, what did Jesus say? Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, what about us? We've lost everything to follow you. Jesus said that in their following him, they would receive far more than they ever lost in eternity with him. We don't lose anything following Jesus. We don't lose anything at all. But he is, I believe, calling us to a radical, uh, a radical faith, a radical life, a, a radical existence beyond, I think, what we often feel or recognize. Well, let's take a look. Joshua chapter 5. The children of Israel crossed over to the Jordan River. They're on the other side. The, look at verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So they cross over to the Jordan. I'm sure the guys in Jericho were thinking, we got all kind of time, no big deal. I mean, we're pretty sure that God's doing something here and their God's real, but the Jordan River's flooded. And they're not just going to walk across with a, a million and a half people. So we got some time to plan, you know, do some things. But then in a day, in a moment, God, by a step of faith, parts the Jordan River and they just walk across. And right in the sight of Jericho, right where they could see the city, no question about what was going on. And the word of God says in Joshua 5.1 that the city of Jericho was freaking out. And their hearts melted in them and they didn't even have the ability within themselves to fight or do anything. So go take it. Right? And what, is that a perfect time to go take the city? Yeah, it seems like a good time to everybody but the Lord. God was going to call them to another even more radical step of faith. Remember the Jordan, they had to put their foot in the Jordan. And then the waters parted. So it was a little bit more of a step. Now, under the walls of Jericho, God's going to call them to do something crazy. Something radical. Something that says, we are totally, completely, utterly consecrated to you. Not just a part of our life, not just a little bit, everything we are. Not about, I am anything other than I am a follower of Christ and everything else is secondary. That's what God calls him to in Joshua chapter 5. He begins to lay that out to him in verse 2. And at that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. That's interesting because God only asked him this after he showed him his greatness by the Jordan River and, and as they crossed over. And when we remember all the things that God's done in our life and the power that God has, has showed in our life, then we need to realize God is calling us to be willing to trust Him to radical obedience. You remember the story in Genesis when uh, Dinah was raped? Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped and, and his sons, Levi and Judah, I think, 
to Levi and Judah? Levi and Judah, anyway, they make a deal with that town. And the town, all the men of this town, they're sorry. And they want to make it right. And so the, the guy who did this thing, he, he, he said he really cared about and, and loved Dinah and he wanted to do whatever he, I'll do anything to make it right. I want to take her as my wife. I want to provide for her. I want to watch out for her. And so Jacob said, okay, but in order for us to, to become family, you're all going to need to be circumcised. And every man in that entire town said, okay. So they were circumcised. And Levi and Judah went in after they'd been circumcised and killed every single one. Why? Because they couldn't fight. They stepped out in a type of radical obedience, at least to, to Jacob, and trying to make things right, and it cost them everything. Because they couldn't fight. They're wiped out. They're done. They're pretty much just going to lay around for a few days. And here, they cross the Jordan. Jericho's freaking out. The mighty army of God. God doing incredible works. And now God says, I want you to take every man who can fight and circumcise them. Make them useless for four or five days right beside the walls of Jericho. I'd say that's a, a call to radical obedience, wouldn't you? Excuse me, Lord, but uh, you want us to take the entire army and make us useless to fight and defend ourselves here. We could have done that on the other side of the Jordan, right? But he didn't call them to do that on the other side of the Jordan. He was calling them to a step, a radical step of faith, where in which they were required by this obedience to say in every way, in every facet, I put my life in your hands, right? Isn't that what they're doing? The moment they're circumcised, they're, they can't defend themselves. So now it's, I trust God. He's going to do it. And in a lot of ways, I think that mirrors our, what our response to the gospel needs to be. Our response to the gospel, more than you know, some churches will teach, well, if you go through these classes, another church will say if you're baptized, another church will say this, that all that stuff is outward signs of what is supposed to take place inside of the life of a believer. And I believe that response is just like this response, a radical step of faith in trusting everything you are or ever will be into the hands of God. And God doesn't make them do it blindly. Before he did it, didn't he show them before that the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the crossing of the Jordan River? I mean, over and over and over again, God shows his ability and his, his power to save. But I think he wants more from us than our Sundays and Wednesday nights. I think he wants more than, than you know, our comfortable Christianity, especially in times like this. I think we of all generations are blessed to be walking in the days we're walking in and the opportunities that we have. We say, well, the, we're, we're living in a post-Christian United States, which we are, by the way, in case you didn't know that. We're post-Christian. This is no longer a Christian nation. Has been declared by the, the, the leader of the free world that that's not who we are anymore. Well, you know what that means? 
That means we got opportunity everywhere we turn to share the love of Jesus Christ, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the, the truth, the justice of Jesus Christ with everybody we meet. The, the truth, the, the, the vital and viable gospel everywhere we turn. I served in the Marine Corps for, for eight years total, four years in uh, uh, active and four years in reserves. And, and when I served in the Marine Corps, I always loved uh, uh, some of the old Marine Corps stories, especially when they start talking about Chesty Polar and the Frozen Chosen. Chesty Polar? Well... You can go search on them. I'm not going to tell you all the craziness. But I will tell you this. In the Korean War, there was a time during the Chosen Reservoir when the Marine Corps, for the first time in their history, had to retreat. It was this big boast, you know, Marine Corps. Marines don't retreat. We keep moving forward. We'll just die moving forward, whatever. There's this, uh, you know, everybody's got it. That was a Marine Corps thing. But... In the frozen chosen, the, the, in the chosen reservoir in Korea was winter. Everybody was freezing and they run out of what they needed and they could not move forward anymore. So they had to retreat. They called it a fighting withdrawal so that they didn't have to call it a retreat. So it was a fighting withdrawal. And in that fighting withdrawal, Chesty Polar and all the guys who were with him, they all get surrounded. And the Koreans are trying to cut them down and do all this craziness. And Chesty Polar says, fellas, don't worry about it. If we're surrounded, that just means we can fight in every direction. We don't have to know which way to go. Well, I like that in terms of living in a post-Christian United States and realizing everywhere we go, there are people who don't know Jesus. And opportunities for us to live out a radical faith. To say, here we are in the shadow of Jericho. And am I willing to consecrate myself totally to God? Because I can hide it. I can be comfortable Christian and everybody will be okay with me. As soon as I become a radical Christian, what happens? Uh, no, no, no we don't, we'd rather not hang out with you anymore. You're always talking about Jesus. You're always wanting to, to, to read the Bible. You're always wanting to share about him and you make me feel bad. Good. Good. I think God's calling us at this time in our world to live out a radical faith. A faith like these guys that says, in the face of all this chaos, I will trust you with everything I am. And I'm not going to worry about anything else. I'm going to seek you first. And everything else is going to fall into place. That's what God... I think that's what he wants them to do, and, that, and that's what they're going to do. Now, they, none of them were circumcised for 40 years of wandering. So every male, period, and every fighting male from 20 to 50, they're all going to be circumcised. So Joshua made flint knives. That's out of stones. Sound good to any of you guys? Yeah, whatever. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at a place called the Hill of the Foreskins. What else are you going to call it? You just need to picture. Say the army is 300,000 men. 
all being circumcised. They just throw it all at the bottom of this hill and say, that's the hill of foreskins. I bet nobody played on it for a long time. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere near the hill of foreskins. (laughs) I want to stay away from that place. I want to stay away from there. So so here, Joshua does it. He, He does it with these flint stones. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males... All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. There was a suspension of the covenant between God and His chosen people during the wandering in the wilderness. The sign of the covenant was circumcision. Again, an outward sign of uh, inward change. Well, now he's got a new generation who have the inward change, but they don't have the outward sign. So God says, at the eve before what could be the biggest battle of their life, let's get circumcised. So that's what they did. They were all circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who had come out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. So nothing happens. I feel like yelling when I read about all that much circumcision too. (laughs) Nothing happens. Nothing goes on the whole time. In a radical, a place of radical faith, a place of radical trusting. Well, yeah. Maybe as we look at this, you know, we say, well, that's children of Israel. But, but I think Jesus calls us to that too. Let's hold your finger here and let's turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Let's read some of Jesus' words. I wear out certain places in my Bible and it keeps wanting to go to chapter 19. It's not okay. Luke chapter 9. Let's look around verse 37. Or I'm sorry, 57. 57. Let me put my glasses on. That'll be better. Now, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Does that seem like an odd thing to say to someone who says, I want to get saved? I mean, isn't that what he's saying? Lord, I want to follow you. I want to follow you, Lord. In these three examples, we see Jesus. It's almost as though Jesus is trying to talk him out of it. But I think part of what he's telling them is the cost of discipleship. 
There's a cost. There's a cost. And what he's telling this guy who comes running up to him says, I want to follow you, Lord. I want to follow you. He says, in essence, you're not going to have a home. Do your primary focus your home? Because the Lord says, there's only room for one primary focus if you're going to come follow me. That's me. That's the Lord. Can you take your eyes off of your home? This guy, apparently that was an issue for him, right? But I can understand that for the last several weeks, been an issue for me. We, we made an offer, thought we were going somewhere, found out we weren't going nowhere. Now, finally, we're going somewhere and, and probably in another couple days, we'll be going nowhere again. <laughs> in this up and down and back and forth and and you find yourself spending a lot of energy focused on that but if i go to luke chapter 9 jesus would say to me jackie i never said you were going to have a home why are you worrying about that can you come to a place of radical faith where in the presence of your enemies You can make yourself indefensible, unable to take care of yourself, and just lay there on the ground and trust me. Can you do that? Because I think in a lot of ways that's what God's calling us to. A radical faith that radically believes that God's going to do what he said. And the Bible doesn't tell us what this guy does. It just says he runs up, he says, Lord, I want to follow you. And so Jesus says, hey, there's not going to be a home. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then it goes straight to the next guy. And he said to another, follow me. So Jesus sees a guy standing there. This guy's run down and said, Lord, I want to follow you. But if you follow me, you're not going to have a home. And then he looks over at this other guy and he says, follow me. And the guy says to to Jesus, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. Wow. Means let the dead bury the dead. Means why are you worried about your dead father? What's your dead father going to do? What is there in that relationship that is over that you're clinging to? Now, I hear a lot of people, I hear a lot of people make this softer. Want me to make it softer for you? I'll make it softer for you. The guy's dad wasn't really dead yet, and he was just saying, I want to wait around until after my father died. But you know, when I study hermeneutics, one of the rules of hermeneutics is to take the simplest meaning first, and unless there's a reason to throw that out. Because of the linguistics. The only reason to throw it out is because it seems harsh. What if Jesus was really saying, let the dead bury the dead? Why are you worried about your dead father? He's gone. You're here. You're alive. What are you going to do? You're presented with the opportunity. Jesus is saying to this guy, follow me. And he's coming up with an excuse. I need to bury my dad first. Don't bury your dad. Think about when Jesus called the disciples. Did he call the disciples and just say, just, you know, as you guys have time and whenever it fits into your schedule and you spend some time with me. Is that what he said? 
Man, he called James and John, their men in the nest with their father. He said, hey, come follow me. He meant come and leave all that behind. And they came, right? A, a, a position, a, a place of, of radical faith. A radical faith that he's calling them to. Let the dead bury the dead. Don't, don't worry about burying your father. And another also said to him, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Let me go say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, no one putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you're going to constantly be looking back at your family, don't come. Man, that's a call of radical faith, isn't it? I mean, that's radical. To me, that seems really radical. But when we look at that in light of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, stop worrying about all these other things in your life that you put all this value on and put rather that value on me. And all those things will be added unto you anyway. Isn't that what he said? So you're, we, we so, time, so oftentimes we worry about our family. I worry about my family. I worry about where they're going to go and where they're going to be and what they're thinking and what they're doing. But I never really thought about the what does comfortable Christianity look like to someone who's looking for real radical faith. I mean, really, it's not very satisfying. I don't think it is. I don't think it's a very satisfying place to be. I think that, that there's this, this call to, to something, something deeper, something a little bit crazier. I was <clears throat> wanted to share just this quote with you out of this book that I've been going through uh, called Radical by David Platt. It says, uh, ultimately, Jesus was calling them to abandon themselves. They were leaving certainty for uncertainty, safety for danger, self-preservation for self-denunciation, In a world that prizes promoting oneself, they were following a teacher who told them to crucify themselves. And history tells us the result. Almost all of them would lose their lives because they responded to his invitation. That was the call that Jesus had on his disciples. And then we we look around the world at people all around the world and we see you know, brothers and sisters in other areas that are really facing a lot of persecution. And I'm going to tell you, the church in those places doesn't look like this. When I went to the Amazon rainforest, there were guys who had to row a canoe for three days just to hear me teach. You're thinking, they're crazy. I know, I thought the same thing. But that's how hungry they are for the word. Three days of rowing in a canoe. Not for Billy Graham, not for Chuck Smith, for Jackie. We gave out, I think, a hundred study Bibles. At the time, you know how they got the Word of God? They took one Bible and tore the books out of it. And they would pass the books between villages. So this pastor would teach that book, that pastor would teach that book. I mean, it was insane. They come up there and they got themselves their... For some of them, the very first ever full, complete Bible. 
Sit in a prayer meeting with those guys. Imagine the passion, intensity, the things that God does. Because, in essence, like Joshua crossing over the Jordan, God is calling us as believers to enter into the abundant, victorious Christian life. And we can't, I I don't think we can find that abundant Christian reality at the same time just, you know, playing church or being comfortable or making a place in our life for Jesus without total surrender. Well, a young man wrote a poem. And it, in my estimation, comes out of seeing the hypocrisy of comfortable Christianity. And maybe helps give a little insight into what it looks like to other people. All of these hypocrites, all of these smiles, all of these love-struck slaves for miles... I think they're blind. They can't seem to find it, the truth. They think they got it, and most of them bought it. They can't even spot it. This certainly is not it, the truth. You look at me like the Son of God. That's not all that I am, or that's not at all what I am. I'm just a worthless, rebellious fraud of a pastor's son instead. Don't smile at me. It's you it deceives. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Nobody believes the truth. Throughout my youth, there is always someone that tells me of one that I lack. Let me tell you my truth. This prodigal son won't ever turn back to the truth. No regrets. No remorse. No affection. No turning back, no more lies, no more cries of salvation and how I need it. I don't want it. I never had it. If heaven's like going to church and people with no open mind, I'd rather stay on this earth and search for something I'll never find, the truth. Please go away. There's nothing you could say. I'll never make it there anyway. I think that's the fruit of comfortable Christianity. I think that's the fruit of focusing on one aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ and focusing that He loves me and that He's love and that He 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 loves and forgetting the fact that God calls us to walk a holy walk. He calls us to worship and He calls us to warfare. And If we're not walking in that radical faith, that's the picture they see. I'm not saying that's what's in your heart. I'm just saying that's the picture they see. I was never more humbled than when a a teacher came through church one time and he said, you want to know what your primary passion is in life? And, you know, what, Jackie, what's your primary passion? I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, go home and ask your kids, what's your primary passion? Don't beat them when they answer. Because they're going to tell you what your primary passion is in their perspective. 
Not saying it's your heart. But what it is, is the message that's being received. And I didn't hear what I wanted to hear from my kids. Didn't hear it. From my kids, I heard my primary passion is football. You know, football doesn't save. Football didn't die for me on the cross. And in my life of eternity, all the accolades I ever got for football, you know what they'll amount to? Yeah, less than nothing. Less than nothing. If our primary passion isn't the Lord Jesus Christ, then we, we, me, I'm, I'm showing hypocrisy to those in the next generation that I want to lift up. It's as though I, like Joshua, have crossed the Jordan River and God said, okay, now it's time to be circumcised. And I said, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with that. So I'm just going to hang out on the other side of the river. Because I'm comfortable over there. But you see, I'm just like those three guys who came to Jesus. And Jesus said, you're not going to have anywhere to live. And Jesus said, don't worry about burying your dad. And Jesus said, don't make your primary focus your family. Those are radical statements. Those are radical statements that I think he's, he's laying out for us. And I think for us, don't get me wrong, I will never put down the American church because I think the church in America has it harder than anywhere else. Absolutely no question on my mind. The church here is harder to be a believer here than anywhere else on the planet. Come on. We all got a, a, a radical, rebellious nature in us. And when people are taking away our rights and attacking us and, and coming after us with machetes and burning down our churches, hey, it's going to separate the chaff from the, the wheat real quick. And then we're going to buckle in and fight because that's what happens when the church is persecuted. It's when the church doesn't get persecuted that it's hard. When it's easy to fall back into complacency and say, aren't I living a radical life for Christ? Aren't I totally consecrated to him? Then we read stories like this one in Joshua. Man, that's a radical call, isn't it? Well, before we go back to Joshua, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> Just one last thing that, that Jesus had to say. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says, Now as he was going out on the road, a guy came running and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, before we read the rest, I want you to think about what you would say. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Jackie, what do I need to do to be saved? I've had this conversation tons of times. I can tell you what I say. You need to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Admit that you're a sinner. Pray with me together and ask him to come and be the Lord and Savior of your life. Turn your life over to him and you'll be saved. 
Isn't that what Jesus is being asked here? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now look at the answer. First he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that's God. He says, in essence, he's making a declaration of deity here because he didn't say he wasn't good. He said, do you realize by calling me good, you're calling me God because otherwise there is no good in man, right? Isn't that what Romans says? There's no good, no good. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and and loved him. Don't forget that part. Jesus looked at him, loved him and said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven Come, take up the cross and follow me. That's a call to radical faith. The Bible says the guy went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff. Yeah. God will take them Harleys from you. You better be careful. You know, he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of things. What did it show? Not that God needs your stuff and he wants you to not have anything and no home and all that. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to say is God wants to be the primary passion in your life. And when he told this man, sell everything you have, he revealed to his heart his primary passion. And his primary passion was his stuff. The Bible says Jesus loved him. But he called him to a radical faith primary passion that God is first thing on our minds that God is our our relationship with him our following him what did he say you sell all this stuff to the poor and you will what everybody forgets the next part you will have treasures where in heaven in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says the same thing. Don't lay up for yourself riches here on earth. Lay up for yourself riches in heaven. Here the moth will eat, the rust will destroy, thieves will break in and steal. But they can't touch it in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Think about that string again. Think about how long the eternal part of that string is. It goes around the world. Over and over. It never stops. It's endless. Eternity is forever. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures there. Live your life for the big part of the string, not for the dot. Not for what you can get here. Not for whoever dies with the most toys. Wins nothing. Still dies. Yeah. Still dies. It's appointed unto man. Wants to die and then the judgment. So we go back to Joshua chapter 5 and this understanding, hopefully, that God's going to open our eyes and the Spirit is going to move among us and help us realize that God wants to call us to radical faith. And He does it usually right after a victory. Right? They just had the, the Jordan River parted and they walked across. That's pretty. How many guys have seen that before? I have never seen that before. I would be pretty stoked to watch a river just stop, walk across, and then have it start again. On cue. That's that's crazy. 
Right after that, God is going to call them to radical faith. And it's not so much like, unlike the things that he did with all the forefathers who went before them. Abraham, when he first came into the land of promise, what did he immediately face? Famine. He got to the promised land, faced famine. Elijah, he, he defeats all these priests of Baal, and immediately he is threatened with his death by Jezebel. We see over and over again, Jesus Christ comes to his baptism, and immediately what happens? Goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Temptation. God would, I think, have us not only be wary and have our eyes open as we head to the battle, but even after the victory, stop thinking that in our Christianity it's all going to get easy at some point. It's not supposed to. It's a radical life. It's a radical faith. It's a radical thing that God's calling us to, that God's, that God's calling them to in this place. And we want to come out and we want to live in that radical faith. Well, look what happens next. They, they, they have this radical faith and they just hang out and they're not doing anything until they're healed. And then look what happens in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day, the rolling I have rolled away your reproach. It took God more than 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And he symbolized that inward work that was occurring in them by the outward work of cutting away the flesh and leaving it. Cutting away the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Put no trust in the flesh. When we follow the Lord, God wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. When we walk by, by sight, we're walking in a way in which we're putting our, our faith, our trust in our flesh. That's what circumcision was all about. Cut away the flesh. Get rid of it. Get the flesh out of your life and live in the Spirit. Live in a place where every day, moment by moment, you're putting your trust, your faith, your hope in the Lord and reaching out, being sensitive to the Spirit moving and working in your life. That means we gotta, we, we've got to make an effort to that. I'm not saying we do something to make that happen, but we've got to create that time. How do you have quality time? I'll tell you, there's no shortcut. You've got to have quantity time. The more quantity time I have, the more quality time I get. It's the same way when we spend time with the Lord. The more time I spend with Him, the more often I'm going to have quality time. I'm going to hear from Him. I'm going to really receive what God has for me. But I've got to... How often did Jesus withdraw Himself to the Father? Spend time with the Lord. How many times did Jesus go to pray? Every cotton-picking morning. He, if Jesus needed to seek the Father every single morning, if every single morning he had to go present himself to to his Father, and he's God, why do we think that we don't need it? That we don't need that, that same commitment? Not that that commitment 
saved you. We're saved by grace. It has nothing to do with us. It's a gift that God has given. But he is also calling us as he's shown us the power of his salvation to change our lives. He's calling us to a radical faith. Not just like everything else. Salvation is free, but if you have it, it will cost you your life. Yeah, truly, truly. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. 14th of what month? Anybody remember? Nisan, the month of Nisan, or Abib, depending on whether you're before Babylon, captivity, or afterwards. They just changed the names of the months, but it was the same time. The 14th of Nisan. They came down there to the Jordan on the 10th. They celebrate Passover on the 14th, and they were circumcised somewhere in the midst of that. And they're going to celebrate the Passover for the first time in 40 years. They have not celebrated Passover since the Passover in Egypt. Now the Lord says, hey, I'm calling you to this radical faith, but I want you to remember where you came from. You guys know how when, when Paul talks about us really experiencing victory in our life, he says, not that I have already apprehended, but he says, one thing I do, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus my Lord. He's, he says, I forget those things behind. When you do a word study on that, he says, I don't live there anybody know people who live in the past and their whole relationship i know people who's i knew people when i was in california whose whole relationship with god was still based on the tent days in costa mesa now that's i was barely alive it's a long time to base your relationship on you know what I'm saying? That there should be a progression. Shouldn't there be in our relationship? We should have new stories. Amen. We shouldn't have to just live. Now, I'm not saying forget those things. No. Paul doesn't say forget them, never let them come into your remembrance. He says don't live in the past. Put your eyes on Jesus and be moving forward. Here the Lord says after the circumcision, I want you to remember what I've done. That's what Passover was all about, right? Two things Passover did. One, it remembered everything that God had done. Two, it showed them Jesus Christ. Every Passover meal, every Passover Seder, every Passover sacrifice showed them Jesus Christ. It was a picture, it was a model, it was a painting for them of the Messiah who would come and give everything for them. And so it says in verse 11, They ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. Unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased. So they're in the land. Circumcision's over. They celebrate the Passover. They remember their past. They're they're called to live in a radical faith. And it's only going to get steeper, right? Everybody remembers the story of Jericho, I hope. If you don't, don't worry. I'll tell you next week, not tonight. But as as we look at this first... Calls, shows them this, this radical power of God, crossing, getting them across the Jordan. Then calls them to a radical step of faith in circumcision. Then calls them to remember the past and, and think about how God had delivered. And then there's another little radical step that occurs because now there's no more manna. 
For 40 years, you got your bread just by waking up in the morning, going out with a bucket and picking it up off the ground. It's not there no more. Now the Lord says, I want you to live from the fruit of the land. God said, you follow me and I will give you the early and latter rains. I will give you great crops to take everything you need. But if the rain doesn't come, call on my name because you and me are not okay right now. So God says, I'll let you know when you're off track. You'll, you'll find yourself in a dry time. No water. You're in a dry land. But what did Jesus say? If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and I will give him drink. And from him will flow fountains of living water. That doesn't sound to me like it'll be a dry time with Jesus, does it? So if I find myself in a dry time with Jesus, I feel dry, I feel kind of shriveled up. Maybe I'm somewhere I shouldn't be. And I need to call on the Lord and seek his direction and, and, and get right again. Right? I need to get back in that right place. Well, here he tells them, the manna ceased. On the day after they ate the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna. But they ate the food of, food of the land of Canaan that year. Okay, now all that's done. Whew. Now, Joshua is starting to wonder about the battle of Jericho. Somehow I got to go in there and wipe out Jericho. And I, I got this promise to, to save this harlot Rahab and everybody in her house and Man, just the plans. How am I going to do it? How are we going to assault it? How are we going to take this city? How are we going to do all these things? And so in the middle of the night, I don't know if this ever happens to you guys. This is how I picture it anyway. In the middle of the night, you know, late, Joshua goes for a walk. And he's just kind of stoked looking at the stars and and all of creation. And he runs into somebody. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? So there's this this dude with his sword out. Joshua lifts up his eyes and he sees him and he wants to know whose side he's on. I love Jesus' response. By the way, this is Jesus he's talking to. Jesus is the man. As he's standing there, he said, Jesus responds to him, no. No what? Are you on our side or their side? No. I'm not on either one of your sides. I'm the commander of of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In essence, are you on my side? Is this about Joshua, the great general, the conquest, or are you willing to say, now you've taken these steps of faith and you've remembered and you've done all these things. Now I want to know, I want to know something. Are you willing to follow me? Because God says, I'm not here to follow you. I want you to follow me. So he asked that question to him. I have now come. 
I am here now. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Let me ask you a question. Can you fall down on your knees and worship an angel? We read at least two places in the book of Revelation where the angel says, get up. I'm just a servant like you. Don't worship me. Worship God only. When Satan came to Jesus and tempted him and said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. What did Jesus say to him? It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So when Joshua bows down and worships and the commander of the Lord's army doesn't tell him to stand up or knock it off. That means, simply, he is God. Well, Jackie, can he be the Father? No. No man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten Son reveals the Father to us. That's Jesus. It's Jesus appearing to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army. And what's the first thing Joshua does? First thing. Worships. First thing he does is worship on his face. Shaka. To be made prostrate. To prostrate oneself before the Lord. To humble yourself before the Lord. You see, worship is and has never been about entertainment. Worship doesn't matter whether you like the song or you don't. Worship doesn't matter whether there's instruments or there's not. Worship doesn't matter any bit of that. All that matters in worship is that it's a time for you to proclaim your praise, to pour your love, to to give your adoration, to sit at the feet of your God and Savior and praise His name. We do our best in worship to try not to be distracting in that, that you can find in that your time your opportunity to praise him joshua the moment he knew he was in god's presence he was on his face in worship what does the bible say where two or three are gathered what there i am in your midst lots of opportunity to worship in a radical faith right lots of opportunity to first thing joshua does worship We studied the book of Ephesians on Sunday morning, and the first thing we see in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is all the blessings that God's given us, and it's a call for you and I to worship. To worship Him for what He's done for us, for what He's given, for who He is. It's a call for worship. But then we see, He's sitting here, and it says now, So what does my Lord say to my servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Joshua did so. Kicked off his sandals. It was on holy ground. Why does it matter? When we are standing in the presence of God, he doesn't want anything to come between us and him. So he says, get your sandals off. Here I am. Where were they? In the middle of Canaan. What was Canaan? Pagan land. You mean there's holy land in a pagan land? It's holy wherever God is. Wherever His presence is, that's holy ground. 
It's a call, a reminder to walk a holy walk before a holy God who says, be ye holy as I am holy, means be set apart. Don't be like everybody else. I'm calling you to a radical faith. I'm calling you to a real radical, different, living, crazy faith. So he says, Joshua, kick off your shoes. So first he worships, and then we see a holy walk. Pure, uh, honest, right? I mean, you're standing before Almighty God. It's kind of hard not to be honest there, right? We're probably not going to fool him. I don't think we're going to trick him. He knows who we are and he loves us anyway. Isn't that, that's the, the beautiful thing for me is that go back to Isaiah and Isaiah says that the best we can do, the best our works will ever be is filthy, dirty, nasty, rotten rags. Man, that, that's freeing to me. That means God's not looking for me to do some crazy work. He's calling me to a radical faith. He's calling me to a radical trust. He's calling me to a radical walk that I'm not even capable of doing apart from the power of His Spirit being poured into my life. The Lord says, here's my one rule. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Man... That's not always an easy thing to do, is it? But we forget the promise of Romans chapter 5 that says the love of God has been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. We forget in Ephesians chapter 5 the Lord calls us to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the gas in our tank. The Holy Spirit is that He is the person within the triune God through whom he ministers and works and and moves in our life that equips us to do the things Jesus says we're able to do. So then it's not about what I can do. It's about whether or not I can surrender all of me to all of him and see what he can do. The call to radical faith. Well, here, the commander of the Lord's army, he says, hey, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And then in chapter 6, he calls them to the heavenly warfare. Humble worship, holy walk, heavenly warfare. You'll have to come back for the heavenly warfare. Because God's about to give him his plan. Here's how we're going to take Jericho. Yeah, you're not really going to need any swords. You're not really going to need any slings. Yeah, you really don't need much of anything. Except a willingness to follow me in radical obedience. Just believe what I tell you. And you're going to have this victory that you that you can't even imagine. And as we consider this commander of the lord's army guys it's 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 kind of a neat thing for me to to imagine you know all that god is doing all that god has done in this place and it's as though as i look at this we think about it to abraham when he really needed god when when he's in a desperate place in his life god came to him and he saw jesus face to face Abraham was a pilgrim. Jesus came to Abraham as a traveler who wanted a meal. And Abraham shared a meal with him. 
And he told him about his plans in Sodom and Gomorrah and that he was still going to have a son. We see scripture laying out for us that Jacob, the master manipulator, who thought he could work out everything in life, he needed to have some time with God. And so God came to him, how? As a wrestler, to bring Jacob to the point of submission. Jacob got submitted, tapped and all. (laughs) The Lord dislocated his hip. Joshua needed to have a word from the Lord. So Jesus appears to him as the commander of the Lord's army as he heads to battle. God knows what we need, when we need it, and he knows that he is what we need. He's a fulfillment of that. He's a fulfillment of that need. That's why when Abraham or when Moses said to the Lord, Tell me who it is that is sending me, God said, Tell them, Yahweh, I am. I am everything you need whenever you need it. I am the becoming one. And Jesus reveals that to us. And then as we look at the lives of all those other guys, listen, I don't want you to ever lose sight of this truth. Anybody who came face to face with Jesus Christ was different. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. What happened? The Lord added the ruach, the breath. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. The breath, the ruach, the spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 20, as he breathed on his disciples, he breathed on them and said what? Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Were the disciples ever the same again? Radically different? I'd say they were radically different. What about, what about uh, Jacob when he came face to face with God? What happened to him? No longer will you be called Jacob. Now you will be Israel, governed by God. Prince of God, from master manipulator to the prince. Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army, and what happens? God orchestrates everything to provide him the victory, meet all of his needs. Didn't have to worry about it at all, did he? God's calling us to a radical faith in these radical last days. In which everything is upside down. They call evil good and good evil. Bitter sweet and sweet for bitter. Everything's a little bit sideways. And we're called what? Salt. Why? It's a preservative. What are we preserving? Our own way of life? In just the short time that I gave this message, 26,000 children died. That's amazing. A starvation. I don't know we can help them all. 
But I think God calls us to a radical faith to do what we can. Know what I mean? There was an article I seen in the paper a while back. A church spent $23 million building a new church and, and uh, you know, recreation area and stuff. And it was a pretty cool building and state-of-the-art, all state-of-the-art stuff. Right next to it was an was a article about the same organization of, of churches that was sending some, uh, some aid to the hungry. $23 million on building a church. 5000 they sent to the hungry. Now, I'm, I mean, I'm not trying to do the guilt things. We can all go home and watch TV and they can hit us with a God Save the Children commercial and we all cry for those kids. But I don't want to live just for myself. I want to live for Christ. I want, to, I want to live a radical, real faith, not just a comfortable faith. I want to go beyond that. I want to experience everything that God has so that one day, when my kids look back at their dad, there's a different poem. Something that really speaks about the, the primary desire of my heart. But nobody else can do it. If, I, if it's going to be done, I'm the one who's got to do it, right? Nobody can do it for me. I have to make the choice. As though Jesus was saying to me and to you tonight, come follow me. Follow me in a radical faith. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time we can spend in this study, Lord. And I do pray, God, that, that we would just, you know, not, not, not meaning anything as uh, any kind of a guilt trip, Lord, but just a, a time to reflect and look and say, what is my, what is my primary heart's desire? What do I live for? Because in Deuteronomy, Lord, you said that you should hold that first place. That we should love you with all our heart, soul, strength. Lord, I want that to be, I want to follow you in radical obedience with radical faith. I want to understand the height and breadth and width and depth of the love of Christ poured out in my life. I want to recognize all of the truths of what you call me to. And I don't want to just live status quo and at the end of my life look and say, what did I do? What did I do with Jesus? What did I do with my faith? God, I want to, I want to see revival. I want to see people come to know you. I want to see hearts and minds change. I want to see a youth excited about the opportunity, the call to a radical life living for Jesus Christ. I, I want to see all the realities of that. I don't want to be lukewarm. 
and I don't want to be cold, then you only give me one other choice. The word declares that you are a consuming fire. When your glory was upon that bush, it burned and was not consumed. I want to be that burning bush. I want to be ignited by your holy fire. I want you to burn in my life and burn away the garbage and the dross and the fakeness and the and the masks and the deceit and all that. I want that all burned off and I just want to be left with a radical faith. So Lord, we ask as we just have a time of worship closing out the service, Lord Jesus, we pray, meet us here. Cause us to reflect. Ignite us and turn us loose on a world that needs you. God, we will give you all the praise and all the glory for all the majesty, for all that you've done. God, I just want to respond to you with all that I have. So we ask that you would move in that way. In each of our lives tonight, we lay it in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.